Acts chapter 10 is where we are today in this series on transforming relationships. And every family has a story or two that they tell over and over again. And you probably are thinking of your family's big story that you love to tell over and over again. This is one of ours. We have several. We're a big storytelling family. But uh, I, my, you know, Will is here. It's, he came home for the weekend, and so I had to ask him again, can I tell this story? When he's not here, he doesn't know, so it doesn't matter, right? Uh, so when Will was a little bitty guy, I mean, so little, he was still in a crib. He was barely even speaking. I took him to my parents' house out in the country. It was just the boys, just the two of us. And I don't know, guys, you're, you may be a better dad than I was, but I never put the kids down to sleep. It was always Carrie's job. She did that, and I was just like hands off. Uh, but when I took the kids somewhere for myself, or if Carrie went out of town, that was always a terrifying proposition to me is, okay, number one, how do I keep them alive? But number two, how do I get them to sleep? That was the goal. Okay, get them to sleep. So uh, take Will to the country. We run, we chase, we, we you know, climb trees. We do everything we can to get him tired. Sun goes down. My parents open their little pack and play that they put in the, in the spare bedroom. And I, I, I read Will a story, and then I read him another story, and I gave him his pacifier, and I prayed a prayer with him, and I laid him down in the bed, and I waited till his eyes closed, and I was like, done. Mission accomplished. And I walked down the hall to where my parents are sitting watching TV in the den. And as soon as I sit down and breathe a sigh of relief because my work is done, right? My mom goes, hey, look. And she points. And I look to my side and there's Will. And he looks up at me and he goes, I back. So that's the story we tell over and over again. I, I tell that story today because in the book of Acts, that's the history of the church. If you didn't know, that's the whole purpose of Acts. It's from the start, starting from when Jesus ascends into heaven after his earthly ministry for about 30 years after that. And, and you could call it the Acts of the Apostles. That's the traditional name. You could call it Acts of the Holy Spirit, which is what it really is because we see how the Spirit moves in people's hearts and changes lives. But here's another way you can look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a continual series of Satan trying to stop the church from spreading. Satan thinking, okay, I've got them pinned in. I've got a, I've got a boundary around them that they can't cross. They're going to they're gonna be stuck here. I can't touch them because they belong to Jesus, so I can't do anything to them, but I can keep them from getting outside their walls, getting outside their little group, and spreading this, uh, this viral infection of the gospel, Right? And every time the devil erects a barrier, the church climbs over it and says, I'm back. You can't stop me. I got the Holy Spirit in my heart. And the Spirit tells me to proclaim this message and to love my neighbors. And so it doesn't matter what you put in front of me. I'm going to climb it. I'm going to kick it down. I'm going to do the will of God. So we're in this series about being, about facilitating these transforming relationships with people. And I want you to see right from the start, we're going to get into Acts 10 in a moment. This is a long introduction, I'm sorry. But we all have something in common. We all have a common calling. Now, I know each one of us is different, and God created you for a purpose that's a little different than my purpose. But we all have this much in common. In 2 Corinthians 5:18, it says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So first of all, if anybody ever asks you, hey, do you know anybody who's called to the ministry? You can raise your hand and say, yeah, I am. Now, you don't work for a church necessarily. You may not get paid to do ministry. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to the ministry of reconciliation. No matter what you do for a living, your main job in life is reconciling people to God, your family, your friends, your coworkers. But the the next thing I want you to see is that term ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? They leave their home, they go live among people who aren't like them, who speak a different language and have different values, and they represent where they're from. Now, you may consider this sacrilegious to say, but I believe that if Paul had written in a time when the term missionary was commonly used, because they'd never invented that term when Paul was alive, he would have used the term missionary here instead of ambassador, because that is also what God has called us to be, to leave our homes, to go out into a place where people aren't like us. Let's face it, we get to do that in our own neighborhood these days. To, to go to our workplace, to go to our school campus, to go to our doctor's office, our golf course, our wherever we go, and we represent Christ there. We are his missionaries, his ambassadors for the sake of Christ. So uh, this week, today, we're going to talk about what that looks like, how we live that out. Now, let's get back to the, the book of Acts. So like I said, the book of Acts is a continual series of of the devil putting up boundaries around the church and trying to stop them. Let me, let me start with this. In the start of the book, you see Jesus ascend into heaven. And my guess is that when the devil looked up and saw Jesus ascending into heaven, he breathed a sigh of relief and, and, and wiped his scaly brow and said, well, thank God he's gone. Or, you know, probably not thank God, but you know what I mean. Oh man, I'm glad he's out of here. Because he's the one that's been trampling on my work. He's the one that's been setting people free from illness and from pain and from death and, and sin. And now he's gone and all that's left are those 12 idiots that couldn't get anything right. And let's face it, when Jesus ascended into heaven, the Christian movement was very, very small. Only a few thousand people had even heard the gospel at that point. Maybe 500 believed. There were only 120 that were gathered in Jerusalem that were part of the movement, that were part of spreading the, the message of Christ. That's a tiny minority. That's not even a religion. That's, that's barely even a, a sect. It's, it's tiny. And the devil must have thought, okay, I can contain this group. They've shown they've got nothing going on upstairs and no courage. But then Pentecost happens in chapter 2. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes inside those men and women, and they can't be stopped. They're speaking languages they weren't taught before. Peter, the one who disgraced himself the most, all of a sudden stands up bold as a lion and preaches a message, and 3,000 people get saved. And the devil must have thought, what just happened here? This wall that I constructed around this little group just crumbled. And now they're winning people all over Jerusalem to salvation. So he tries a new tactic. He sends this guy named Saul of Tarsus and says, go get him. And Saul goes through the church just killing people and arresting people and threatening people and, and doing what he can. And the devil's probably thinking, okay, now I got this under control again. But all that persecution scattered the church to the four winds. And all these believers in Jesus who were just ordinary men and women with regular jobs like you and me, they get out there to new cities like Antioch and they say, well, we're not around the apostles anymore. I guess it's up to us to form our own churches. The devil didn't think this was going to happen. 
He thought scattered from their base of operations, they would just give it up. But instead, they start new churches in new places and start sharing the gospel themselves. And, and I'm sure he thought, well, okay, so I've lost the Jews. The Jews are gone. They're, they're all starting to believe in Jesus, but they're just a tiny fraction of the world's population. The rest of the world is under my thumb. And then along comes Philip. And Philip is one of those people, one of those early believers in Jesus, not an apostle. But he decides, you know, let's just see what happens if I go share the gospel with the Samaritans. You know those people who hate our guts? those people who we've always despised. Let's go see what happens if we talk to them about the love of Christ. And lo and behold, the Samaritans are hungry for that kind of information and they start believing in Jesus. And God says, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. And he says, Philip, why don't you go stand on the road to Gaza? And Philip goes, okay. And he stands there on that road and waits and waits. And don't you know how surprised he was when the guy coming down the road behind a chariot, behind the reins of a chariot, was a black man? And he's thinking, oh, you want me to talk to him, Lord? Okay, I guess so. Lo and behold, that guy turns out to be a high official in the court of the queen of Ethiopia who forms a church down there where he's from after he becomes a believer that is still existing today, the, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And, and so yet again, a wall has crumbled, which brings us to Acts chapter 10. By the way, I was going to preach on that text, Acts chapter 9, but, but John Harper was good enough to preach on it when I was on sabbatical. So, you know, I can't top him. So we go on to Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. So the interesting thing, there's two interesting things about this. This is the first time that God is reaching out to a member of the actual Roman army. Cornelius, a centurion. He's a God-fearer, which means he already believes in God. He hasn't been circumcised. He's not a Jew yet, uh, but he believes. He prays to the Lord, uh, and God is introducing him to Jesus today. The other interesting thing is, I didn't share this with you, but Philip is in Caesarea, the same city that Cornelius is in. Philip, the guy who's been preaching the gospel to non-Jews and, and winning them to, the, to Christ. The only Christian we know of who's doing that. So why doesn't God, through the angel, say to Cornelius, hey, send a messenger around the corner to this guy Philip and he'll tell you all you need to know. Why instead does he say, send a messenger a day's journey north up the coast to Joppa, which by the way is where my friend of Eve lives today. Why does he say that? Why does he go get Peter who's a day's journey away? And I think the answer to that question is because the disciples still haven't caught on yet. Philip is doing this. He's preaching the gospel to non-Jews. The disciples haven't started yet. God is ready to bring them in on it. And who better to start with than, than Peter, the guy who always jumps first. So now God's got to convince Peter to come. We jump to verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. 
He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So you can picture this in your mind, right? This, this, this uh, bundle comes down from heaven, spreads out on the ground when it lands, and it's full of all these animals. Some of them Peter immediately recognizes as animals that the law of Moses forbids any one of God's people from eating. And so he's thinking, well, this must be some kind of test from God. I'm going to show him that I am righteous. No, Lord, I will not eat that. I will not eat that. I will not eat that. Get that pig out of here. I will not touch it. And God says, no. There's no more of that anymore. Now, is this a, is this a sermon about food? Of course not. This is about, about understanding that there's no distinction between human beings and God's mind. Where the devil puts a box around us and says, stick to your own kind, stick to the people who look like you and think like you and act like you and people you're comfortable with, uh, God says, no, go and reach them. You have to keep in mind. And, and while some of you may have grown up in homes, where you were told, where you were taught certain prejudices and, okay, those people, we, need, we pray for them and we send missionaries to them, but we do not bring them into our house and we're not friends with them and we don't let our sons marry their daughters or their daughters marry our sons. And maybe you grew up in that kind of home and as an adult, you reckoned with the scriptures and realized that that's not biblical at all and you had to come to a different understanding. Some of you went through that as kids. It doesn't touch the kind of prejudice that Peter was taught when he was a kid. The hatred between Jew and Gentile. For Peter, the idea that, that you would go into the house of a Gentile, like God was about to ask him to do, Peter never would have done that. So the vision is about that, yes. It's about tearing down this idea that there's, there's a distinction between one kind of person and another in the eyes of God, but it's also about food. Because remember, the Jews had a very, very strict dietary law given by Moses. We call it the law of kosher. And whenever you have some kind of uh, moral distinction towards another person, it can be, it can be a source of pride. More than that, it became an artificial barrier to the gospel. See, the, the truth is, Jesus had already told the disciples, you can look it up in Mark 7, 19, he'd already said, the, the dietary laws don't count anymore. They were for a certain period of time. They're off the books. All food is now open for you to eat. But guess what? He didn't say that because he was interested in you and me having pork ribs and bacon and, and shrimp and catfish as much as we want to shout hallelujah for that. He wanted Peter and the other disciples to be able to walk into a Gentile's house without any fear that they were disobeying God. He wanted the, the Christians to be able to, to sit down at a table with a non-Jew and eat so they could converse together. He wanted them to be able to go into the marketplace and buy food and chat with the people who kept those stores without saying to themselves, I'm not going to buy your stuff. You probably sacrificed it to Zeus. He said, I don't want food to be an artificial barrier to the spreading of the gospel anymore. So Peter hears this. And he makes the, he makes the journey with these men from, from Caesarea. And I'd be willing to bet that the day he walked into that house, the house of Cornelius, 
a house full of non-Jews, because Cornelius, a powerful man, has invited every Gentile who will come. I bet Peter was more uncomfortable than he'd ever been in his life. Well, I'm glad my parents don't see me here. But he did what God told him to do. He preached the gospel. And every person in that house got saved and gave evidence that the Lord had changed their lives. So now Peter has to go back to Jerusalem and tell the the church, guess what? It turns out that Jesus is the Messiah of everybody, not just us. And to their credit, the church in Jerusalem kind of shrugs their shoulders and goes, well, he's God and we're not. I guess we'll go with it. But that's not the end of the story because years pass and the church has to actually have a big meeting in Acts chapter 15 in which they say, okay, let's decide it once and for all. Are we going to let these Gentiles join us or not? Aren't we at least going to make them get circumcised and go through all the process of becoming fully Jewish before they accept our Messiah? And the end of the, of the discussion in, in Acts chapter 15 is, no, we're not. We're going to share the gospel with them like everybody else. We're not going to put an artificial barrier in the way of somebody accepting Christ as their Savior. But the devil's stubborn. He keeps building that same wall. We see Paul in in Galatians 2 writing about the time when Peter came up to Antioch where Paul was doing ministry, and he noticed that Peter was only sitting with his fellow Jewish Christians. He wouldn't sit with any of the Gentile Christians. He wouldn't eat with them. Peter had backslidden. The one God taught this message to all those years before had gone back to his old prejudices and ways. And so Paul calls him out in front of everyone. Don't you wish you had video of this? Paul calling Peter in front of everyone. Hey, you're a hypocrite because you expect these Gentiles to follow the law when you yourself as a Jew couldn't follow the law. My point is the devil keeps putting up barriers. And we as the church have to keep knocking them down and climbing over them and keep pursuing the people God has placed in our lives. We still face barriers today. I hope you understand that. There are still racial barriers in our culture, although there is not the kind of hatred we see, for instance, between Israel and Palestine today. Thank God. And yet still, you look around this room, most people look like me. Montgomery County doesn't all look like me. We should pray and work and go out of our way to love people who don't look like us in part because the church of Jesus Christ needs to reflect the community it's in. So that anybody in this community who walks through these doors needs to be able to look around and go, oh, there's somebody like me here. That should be a goal of us as a congregation. We have a language barrier that we have to cross as well. More and more of our neighbors don't speak English as their first language. And they may, they may send their kids to school. They may learn enough English to function. But I guarantee you, if they're going to accept Christ, it's going to be in the language they grew up with. That's just how human hearts work. And thank God that there is already an ESL program in our church and men and women in this very room who are, who are doing the work of evangelism and, and reaching out to our, our non-English speaking neighbors. That's already going on on Tuesdays here at the church and you can be a part of it. We'd love to have you. There's also a, a Spanish speaking life group that has just begun in the last couple of months and we're excited about that. My dream is someday we'd have a Spanish speaking worship service right here in this church. Obviously, I won't be the preacher. No, I just spoke Spanish. See, that's, aren't I bilingual? No, that's, that's not. We need somebody who that is their heart language to lead that service. So that's something you can be praying about for our future and see what, how the Lord leads. But, but the main thing I want to talk about is we face a cultural boundary. 
Because we all know, we all see how culture is changing around us. We all see how in so many ways our, our, our culture, our society is embracing values and ways that we know aren't biblical, that we know aren't right. And some of those scare us very, very much. And so the, you get a new neighbor and he, he puts a sign in his front yard and you go, well, I, I don't vote for that guy. I don't believe in that cause. Your kid comes home from school and says, hey, my friend said this to me. And you're like, no, 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 that's not the way we believe. And so we as Christians get concerned about these things. We see, we see culture changing in ways that we're not comfortable with. And the problem we face is our tendency is, okay, let's build a wall. Let's build a wall around us so that ugly world can't get into us. And let's just practice what we know is true and let's let them rot. And that's not the Bible. That is not Christ. That tendency feels safe, but it's not following Jesus. I, I remember when I was in seminary, speaking of being a missionary, I, I, I met a guy who was an, a working missionary with the International Mission Board, and he was home on furlough. Missionaries, at least in Baptist life, they go over for so many years, and then they can come home for a year. And they spend that time resting and reflecting and growing and speaking in churches. This guy's mission field was Gaza. Now, Gaza wasn't at that time ruled by Hamas like it is now, but it was still a really dangerous, really hostile place. And here's this guy, probably 30, 32, a uh, young family. And I saw him and, and we talked for a while. I said, man, I bet you're glad to be home. And without batting an eye, he said, I can't wait to go back. Because that's the spirit of someone who has embraced their calling and said, yeah, I grew up here, so this feels like home, but I wanna be among the people God's called me to reach. They're my people too. They may not have anything in common with me, but I love them because Christ loves them. And guess what, that's our calling too. When we see people move in to our community, we hear things on the news that make us concerned and, and we see people embracing lifestyles we disagree with, our main thought shouldn't be, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I might as well move. Our mindset instead should be, man, the devil messed up. He brought that person right next to me. I'm going to love him with the love of Christ. He doesn't know what he's in for. That should be our mindset. God just gave us an opportunity and we're going to capitalize on it. Now, how do we do that? Listen, you're, gonna hear a, you're, gonna, you're about to hear a land speed record. No Baptist preacher has ever given you three points faster than I'm about to give you three points right now. Because we see the church in the book of Acts living like missionaries, and that meant at least these three things. Number one, they lived among their unbelieving neighbors with uncompromising integrity. The early church was in a world where everybody, everybody worshiped multiple gods. They refused. Everybody offered offerings to the emperor. The early Christians didn't. Everybody was engaging in, in these lifestyle choices that were ridiculously promiscuous and harmful to society, but that was just the way things were. And the Christians were like, no, we believe that we're going to just be man and wife for life, and that's it. And we're going to love our children, and we're going to take care of our babies, and we're going to love your children too. And the Romans thought the early believers in Jesus were the weirdest people they'd ever seen. There's writings from that time where they're talking about, we can't figure these people out. But then number two, number two, they loved their neighbors in practical ways. 
See, here's the amazing thing. In spite of the fact that the, the Romans and culture thought that, that the Christians were weird, it also says in Acts 2.47 that they had favor with all the people. That everybody who knew the Christians were like, those are weird people, but man, they sure are good to have as neighbors. And if I get sick and I'm, I'm in trouble, I want a Christian around because I know they're going to love me and they're going to take care of me. My, my pagan neighbors, my family are going to leave me to die, but those Christians are going to show up and nurse me back to health. They loved people in practical ways. And then three, they spoke the truth in love. Peter was so bold. Remember, Peter was a guy who, uh, when Jesus was still here, he was so afraid of the Sanhedrin, he denied him three times, embarrassed himself. A few weeks later, the Holy Spirit's in Peter, and he's so bold that he stands in front of the same Sanhedrin and says, I have to obey God rather than men. You just beat the skin off my back, and you told me I'm going to get it worse next time? Okay, I'm still going to preach. But it wasn't about owning the other side. It wasn't about winning arguments. It was always about winning people. Let me say that again. The early Christians lived in a culture where nobody thought like them, where, where the culture around them embraced values that they knew were unbiblical, that were abhorrent to them, and yet they weren't trying to win arguments. They were trying to win people. Is that how we live? They weren't trying to own anybody. They were trying to persuade. They were trying to win them to Christ. If we can make that shift, if the Holy Spirit can get in us, if we can let him control us to such an extent that we as God's people in, in downtown Conroe begin to live that kind of life, the devil can't stop us. And if we don't, then our church's days are numbered. And I don't just mean First Baptist Conroe. I mean the church in America. I mean, my grandkids, if I have grandkids, will live in a world where other countries are sending missionaries here. That's what's going to happen if we don't start living this way. And I'm not exaggerating. So, let me just leave you with this. In the early 40s, sorry, late 30s, when the Nazis invaded uh, France, actually the early 40s, any Jewish family that had the means got out of it got out of the country. They fled to Belgium. They fled to France. They fled to England, even America. There was a Jewish family in France. Last name was Jaffo. They had to make a heartbreaking decision. They didn't have enough money for all of them to get out of the country. So the mom and dad said, well, let's send our boys out. They had two boys, 12-year-old Joseph, 10-year-old Maurice. They gave the money they had to 12-year-old Joseph. They put the two boys on a train and said, when you get to the border, find someone who will take you across. You'll, you'll need to pay them. That's what the money's for. Can you imagine being 12 years old? When they get to the border, I think it was with Spain, Joseph manages to find a, a delivery boy. He pays him, literal delivery boy takes him across the border, gets him to safety. It's getting to be dark, so the two boys find a barn. They bed down there for the night in some, in some hay. As they're about to fall asleep, or as they fall asleep, uh, Joseph gets up and leaves. Maurice wakes up in the middle of the night, finds his brother gone. He's terrified. But there's a note there that says, I'll be back soon. So with the faith of a 10-year-old, he believes him. He goes back to sleep. When he wakes up, the sun is out, and the barn is full of people. And he looks around, and he finds his brother. There's Joseph. And he says, who are all these people? He says, well, after you went to sleep, I thought, you know, I know how to get across now. So I went back and I found some people who were trying to get across like we were. 
And I brought them with me. And I went back and I brought more and I brought more. And I did that all night. He said, I figured since I know how, I should bring as many as possible with me. And that's our calling. See, there was a time when the people who hated the gospel, they took Jesus and they nailed him to a cross. And they said, that's it. We're done with him. And three days later, he came out and said, I'm back. You can't stop me. And someday the clouds are going to part and he's going to come back. And when he comes back and stands astride this world as king, he's going to want to find us doing what he commanded us to do. And that is loving the people he sent into our lives, kicking down the barriers, the artificial barriers that seek to stop us from sharing the love of Christ. That is our calling.